in the 1500s when the Spaniards came to what we know now as Mexico City. They, they came to a city that was built by the Aztecs that was absolutely beautiful. I mean, it had temples and buildings and uh, aquifer systems and, and gardens. And it was really just a beautiful, beautiful place. Um, but when the Spaniards took it over and they destroyed it all, they just built their city right on top of it. And they built things on top of the aquifers, on top of the gardens. And I don't know if they didn't know or they just chose to neglect, but it essentially became a very foolish decision to just build on top of it all because Mexico City is actually built on top of a swamp. And the aquifers and the gardens were all strategically placed to keep the thing from sinking. And so now we are, you know, several hundred years later, and if you were to travel around Mexico City and you were to walk around, you'd see buildings that are beginning to sink into the ground. In fact, I was watching a, a show called Somebody Feed Phil, and that's this documentary of food in different places and in Mexico City. Um, he's walking around, and you can see buildings that are kind of leaning into each other because the ground underneath it is a swamp. And so one, uh, one monument in particular, it was built in 1910, it's called the Angel of Independence. The Angel of Independence was one of the few things that was built on solid ground. When they built it in 1910, it took nine steps to get from the street up to the monument. If you were to go to there today, you'd walk up 24 steps because they have to keep adding more because the streets around it are sinking down. Over the last 60 years, the city is known to have sunk 32 feet. 32 feet. Can you imagine that? There's doors where there are no longer doors on the houses because they're underground. It's fascinating to think of, but the city is built on something that can't sustain it, and so it's going to sink. Last week, as we started out this Search for a King series, we talked about the reality of what God says is true of a king. That if you're going to if you're going to put a human being who in this world is corrupted by sin, if you're going to put him in a position where he has very low accountability and unrivaled opportunity to do whatever he wants, there's the, there's the reality that it's, it's not going to be able to sustain your hope. And so my challenge is, as we look at it and we, we think about it in this series, that you understand that human government by all means is necessary and can accomplish some good things. To put your hope on it is to build a city on top of a swamp. It's not able to sustain the weight of what your heart expects and hopes for as we consider what, what politics are, that, that they're just not made to hold what, what our hope is. We talked last week, and I, I want to go over it again because I think it's so important, that hope is precious. Your hope, you should understand, it, it's so vital to your happiness in life and, and how just you are emotionally, how you are and you go about your day. Your hope is so incredibly valuable. And what we do is we tie our hope, we, we attach it, we, we take a string from our hope to, to our athletics or to, to, uh, to our intelligence or to politics or to our career, to our kids, to our marriage. We tie hope to all these things and we don't understand that they begin to sink at different times in life. And what scriptures come to again and again is they, say, they challenge us to put our hope in Jesus Christ, to put our hope in God because he's the ground that doesn't sink. And Jesus says a wise man builds his hope, builds his house on the rock. That has much to do with our hope and whether or not our hope stands or falls in a season of storm. So we looked at this idea last week of, of understanding human government. We said what is true based on Deuteronomy 17 of a king is that a king is in a position that, that his heart corrupted by sin is not really made to, to handle well. 
And so we looked at how a king is, is prone to, uh, to giving into temptation of popularity, of pride, of power, of pleasure, and, and of prosperity, where he might, in that situation, care more about himself and his own well-being and his own enjoyment than he cares about his subjects. And then, then we took a journey to, to the very first time when Israel has a king, and we looked at how Samuel the prophet warned them, and he warned them that they might expect the king to be for them what only God can be. And he talks about what is really an exaggerated trust. So we've got a king in a position where he's got all kinds of temptation, and we've got a nation in a position where they have temptation. Exaggerated trust, and this is all about me. And we take that forward, and you've got King Saul, who lives that out and shows that absolutely clearly. You've got David, who does the thing. David, by all means, is mostly a very good king. And then he's got a son, Solomon. And Solomon increases the, the kingdom like crazy. He's got wealth. He's got power. He's got wisdom. And then what we're going to look at th today, and really over the next couple of weeks, is the kings that follow. We're going to look at three of them this morning. We're going to look at Solomon's son, King Rehoboam. Now, you would think that Rehoboam is going to take over the throne in a really good place. I mean, the nation has never had more wealth. They've never had greater allies. They've never just had more opportunity around them. But what you don't realize, if you look at just the external places of the king, is that the nation of Israel internally is ready to fall at any point. See, Solomon had built these massive, beautiful temples and buildings, but he did it with the forced labor of the northern tribes of Israel. So remember, Israel is family tribe units. There's 12 of them. There's 10 in the north and there's two in the south. And so what Solomon did was he, he through harsh labor, forced the northern tribes to get the southern tribes projects done. Now, if you're a northern triber at that point, you, you're not really happy to be in the nation of Israel. And so when King Solomon dies, we're at a point where where the unity of the 12 tribes has gradually dissolved, and they're looking at it like, this is our chance. We can finally get the relief that we want at this point, because Solomon's not in control. And so his son comes on the scene, and King Rehoboam has the opportunity to either unify and meld the nation through servant leadership and compassion, or, or he can be, in the, in the note of his father, primarily concerned about his reign and not his people. So we pick it up in 1 Kings chapter 12 and verse 4, where the, the ten tribes and their representatives are going to go to Rehoboam, and they're going to say, this is what we're requesting if we're going to honor you as king. And in verse 4 it says, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam answered, Go away for three days, then come back to me. So the people went away. So what happens is they go to Rehoboam, and they say, Look, we want relief. We want less labor. We want the yoke to not be so heavy upon us. And Rehoboam, like any king should do, says, I'm going to need some advice to, to figure this out. I'm going to need some time. This is a big decision. Come back to me in three days. So what he does is he seeks out advice from those who are his father's counsel. Right? They were with his dad for all these years. And so he says, hey, what do you guys think I should do in this situation? And the response is, that you should be a servant king, not so much like your father, but like your grandfather. You should be loving, you should be considerate, you should listen to these people, and you should give a response that's favorable to them. And if you give a response to, that's favorable to them, they'll be with you all your life. Rehoboam says, okay, let me get some more advice. So he grows, goes to a group of men who the scripture really paints as 
as his childhood friends. Now, what do you think Rehoboam's childhood was like, where you've got a guy who's spoiled beyond belief, who ends up being arrogant, and he's got a group of friends that are just like him. And he goes to these immature, grown men. And he says, what do you guys think I should do? And look at the advice they give in this interaction in verse 9. He asks them, what is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father put on us? The young men, and by the way, when when it says young men here, this is a jab at their character because they're 40 years old. And it says the young men, in other words, the really immature men who had grown up with him replied, these people have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make your yoke lighter. Make our yoke lighter. Now tell them my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Now, that's some good advice. So you've got two different pieces of advice. You've got the counselors who've been there before or the arrogant fools. And Rehoboam, and the beginning of what is probably one of the worst days in the nation of Israel, comes along and he takes the advice of the young fools. In verse 12, three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam as the king had said, come back to me in three days. The king answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given him by the elders. He followed the advice of the young men and said, my father made your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Wow. Let's, let's just pause and pray and ask God to teach us what it is we're looking at here. Father, I pray that you would, you would, in your wisdom, that you would make us wise. I pray, Lord, that as we look at a man who is calloused and inconsiderate, that our hearts would move in the other direction, that we would be soft and great at listening, great at considering the, the circumstances of others, that we can see how it is you want us to love them. Father, I pray that we understand more about human government and how this all works and what happens when people are selfish and how it changes things and, and what our response should be. And we ask that in your son's name. Amen. What happens is exactly what you think would happen. The northern ten tribes essentially say, well, we're not going to be part of your nation anymore. If you're going to be harder on us than your father was and we hated his reign, we don't want anything to do with it, so just consider us not part of the nation anymore. Uh, Rehoboam is going to send an advisor out to try and solve things and smooth things over, and they end up killing him, and they try to kill Rehoboam, who's got to run out of town for his life. It's not surprising, given the way that Rehoboam had acted. Now, to say that this is what caused the nation to divide is not really fair to him. This was brewing for a while. But essentially, Rehoboam and his answer and his foolish advice and, and the counsel of these young men, it essentially threw a match into a room full of bombs. And he should have known better as to what would have happened. But what we have were ten exhausted tribes who met a hot-tempered ruler. Proverbs is not shy about the destruction that a hot temper can bring about. Proverbs is not shy about the foolishness of counsel from fools. And honestly, we as a people have to be people who are smart enough to say, is the counsel I'm getting improving my character or decreasing it? What are the character of the people that I'm getting advice from? Is there a part of that where I even step back and say, I probably shouldn't get advice from these people because I look at what's true of them in their life 
and I don't want my life to end up like their life, so then my, my path should be to get advice elsewhere. But what's going on here is we see an insecure leader trying to gain control while he himself is out of control. He's not even in charge of his own spirit, and yet he's trying to rule a nation. What you see is this massive grab for power, and you see a group of people who see it for what it is. They see it as fear-mongering, they see it as bullying, they see it as as just a genuine lack of compassion towards them. I I love the way that R.D. Nelson kind of summarized this all. He says, Rehoboam chooses slogans over wisdom, machismo over servanthood. Uh, There's a theologian named DeVries. He says, surely Rehoboam was a weak and fragile personality, disguising this for the moment with a show of harshness and bravado. I'm convinced that if you look at leaders throughout history and you look at leaders even present day, you look at Rehoboam, you can learn a lot about them based on one simple question. Who are they trying to protect? Are they trying to protect the wealthy and the elite? Are they trying to protect themselves? Are they trying to protect the people who will keep them in the position they're in? Are they trying to protect the people who are poor, who are desperate? You can learn a lot about a person by asking the question, who are they trying to protect? And I'm not trying to make a political statement that's driven towards one candidate or another right now. I'm just trying to say that overall, you can learn a lot about somebody's heart based on who they try to protect. And Rehoboam is protecting himself. He doesn't care about the people. He says, my father scourged you with whips, I'll scourge you with scorpions. And there's a reference to the fact that he'll put pieces of metal, he'll have the slave masters put pieces of metal at the end of the whips. If you think it was bad before, it's going to be worse now. And as we look at him trying to protect himself, my mind drifts back to Deuteronomy 17, where God told of of what would happen when the king would sit on the throne. And then at the end, God issued a challenge directly to the king. And he says, keep the word of God. Keep the law close to your heart. Read it before. Read it all before you sit on the throne. Read it regularly throughout life. Because if you don't, the king will think that he is better than his people. And we see a man who has very quickly forgotten the law, forgotten the word of God, and he thinks himself better than the people. And in foolishness and bravado, he tears down the dynasty that his father and his grandfather had built in one sweeping move. And the divide is there. And and I want us to look at the response when the people, when the ten tribes to the north, I want us to look at what they say when when they walk away. Because they understand the gravity, but it's like they don't care about the, the, the actual results. First Kings in chapter 12 and verse 16, it says, When all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, Israel. Look after your own house, David. So the Israelites went home. And so a divide is drawn. No hesitation. No stepping back to say, what's really at stake here? Do we really want to walk away from this? They just leave. The king hasn't listened to us. It's going to get worse. So let's just walk away. Uh, Again, DeVries is spot on when he talks about this. He says, possibly this passage's most important lesson is how much easier it is to break up what belongs together than it is to restore what is broken. How much easier it is to break up what belongs together than it is to restore what is broken. 
Look, if we're honest, that's not just true of a nation. That's true of a marriage. It's true of our relationship with our kids, with our co-workers. It's true of everything around us that we hold dear to us. It's much easier to destroy something, to break it up, than it is to unite and to restore and to keep it together. Isn't that true? It's much easier to destroy. You can say a thousand kind things, but it's the one harsh thing that can ruin a relationship forever. It's much easier to break something than it is to restore. I, I was thinking about this, and I was thinking of a time went over to my mother-in-law's house, and, and uh, in her basement on the, the table, there's a coffee table down there, and, and there's a candy dish. There's always a candy dish, and, and of course, you know, it's not too long that I go over there that I, that I go to grab a piece of candy. And this particular day, I went to reach for it, and, and I kind of careless, carelessly bumped it. Now, in my defense, I... I, I promise you the coffee table had like I don't know if it was a fresh coat of wax or if like it was just sprayed down with old English and and that candy dish just took off uh, and it fell and it shattered on the floor and I remember thinking like I wow that broke easily I did not try to break this so I went out and got her another one which I promptly broke the next time I visited in the same fashion and I remember looking at these just shattered candy dishes on the ground thinking, there's no way I would be able to try to piece that back together. Why? Because it's much easier to break things than it is to put them back together. But here's what, here's what I need us to know. Because even though it's easy, it should never be what we settle for as a church. It should never be what we define as, it's just easy to break things. It's too hard to fix it. We'll, we'll just move on. That should never be our attitude. Not, not ever. In any relationship should that be our attitude. Um, here's, here's why. There's two reasons. No, number one, that when we begin to destroy things, there's something that happens within us. That we ourselves become changed through the process of destruction. That if I wreck something, the next time I don't feel so bad. The first candy dish, I felt horrible. The second candy dish, oh well. I'm sure a third and a fourth will happen one day. And when I do, I probably won't care too much. It'll even become a joke, essentially, because there's a point where the more that I destroy something, the less I care about it, the more I become calloused about it. It's one thing when it's a candy dish. It's another thing when it's a relationship. For me to understand that God has wired me in such a way that I shouldn't take the easy path. I shouldn't become calloused. And if I have, and if that's where my path is, where my heart is, that I really need to spend time with God and say, God, I don't like the fact that I've become calloused. I don't like the, the fact that I've stopped listening and stopped caring and stopped having compassion. I don't like that, and so I want it to change. That, that should be the response for us. Not that this is easy, not that this is easy, but that I want God to undo whatever is wrong in my heart that prevents me from caring about people. The other side of this is, is that I want you to understand that when we plan sermon series, we're very strategic as to, to planning them and what time of the year, what season, and, and even so much as to what se series follows this one or what series comes next. And, and the reason we do that is because we understand that we want God to build something here. We're not just preaching sermons, but we think God is growing our hearts in a way that's very strategic, in a way that's very specific. And so, so right now we're in this series about the search for a king in a season of life that is fairly chaotic. If you go and you flip on the news or you look in your, your news thread in your, in your uh, phone, you're going to see a bunch of news that is really just chaotic right now. 
And it's very easy in our season to have bias be what defines us. What we like and what we prefer and what we want to happen on a national level can define us in a way that if we're not careful, it can override God's command that we should love one another, even if the one another is different than our bias. And so there's a reality where I think we are very wise to step back and say, I need to love people even if I disagree with them, even if I'm different than them. That's why we put the Connected series right before the Search for a King series. Because the Connected series is all about God wants you to be connected with people. He wants you to be filled with grace and mercy. He wants you to be really good at forgiving people. He wants you to be really good at being merciful to people. Oh, hey, we're also in a season where it's really good to be angry at people. It's really good to not care what somebody is, is feeling and experiencing. It's really easy, but sometimes easy is not what we're called to. And easy is not, not what we as a church are meant to be. If there's only thing, one thing that you're going to remember, and I'm going to say this in every sermon that I preach in this series, if there's only one thing that you're going to remember, this is what I want you to remember. The most impor- important battle that faces us in the season of turmoil is not who sits on the throne of our country, but it's who rules the throne of our hearts. The most important battle we face right now is not who sits on the throne of our country, but who rules the throne of our heart. Because if we get a president that we want, that does the things that we want, but our hearts have become something that God doesn't want, we've lost something very important. We've forgotten the primary mission that overrides this all. That I should love. That I should be kind. That I should be quick to listen and slow to speak, as James says. These are the things that are far more important because the scripture teaches us, if you do anything without love, then you've done nothing. 1 Corinthians 13. He says to do life without love is like just taking a bunch of symbols and banging them together. All you've done is make noise. It's motion without meaning. When love slips to the background of your motivation, and it's not at the forefront of why you do what you do, it's motion without meaning in your life. Or worse, it's destructive. And God wants us to be a people who says it might be easier to divide than it is to unite. But unity is worth it. And unity takes love and unity takes sacrifice. Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 says this. He says, blessed are the peacemakers. Let that be what is primarily at the front of our heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. You know why we can be peacemakers in a time that's chaotic? Because it's not at all, not even in the little bit, it's not even like tiny, not even a smidge of chaos to God. It's not. There's nothing about this season right now that's chaotic to him. And we gain an insight as we look back into 1 Kings. We go back to Rehoboam. We go back to the the ten tribes. And again, if you were a person in in the nation of Israel, this this is just an absolute disaster. This is is horrible. I mean, that whole nation is essentially splitting in half to become another nation because this young ruler is arrogant and inconsiderate. How could this happen? It's chaotic. And what the author of Kings does is he lets us into a little bit of an insight as to why this isn't chaotic at all. That actually, there's all the, all the motivation for us to understand that God's in control. Because in 1 Kings 12, 15, it says simply, So the king did not listen to his people, for this turn of events was from the Lord, to fulfill the word of the Lord. It goes on to refer a prophecy that had come before. He says it's not chaotic. 
It's not crazy that, that none of this makes sense. He says, he says, no, no, God is actually in control right now. And it's a fascinating thing to step back and look at and to say, on one hand, Rehoboam is a foolish man and his actions caused the divide of a nation. And on the other hand, God was in control of the whole thing all along. And so what do we do with that? What do we do with what looks like a, a contradiction? What do we do with this kind of unsettling tension of, oh, wait a second, God, I thought Rehoboam caused this, but now I find out that you're in control. How does this unfold? And, and really, as a communicator, there's a reality where I don't like to talk about things that are unsolved. I like there to be a conclusion to the things that we talk about. It's just natural. It's within me. And part of it is very much our culture loves to be able to figure things out. If we can't figure it out, then we're just driven. We're obsessed with being able to come up with an answer as to why or how or, or, or what. We want to know. We need to know. But what the scriptures do is they bring us to a place which requires total humility to say there's something that you don't know here. And there's something you won't be able to know. Uh, David does it in the Psalms when he says such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Paul does it in Romans where he says how unsearchable are the judgments of God. You can't even, can't even search that. Isaiah says it simply, my ways, and God says my ways are higher than your ways. There's, there's a level here where you're not going to understand it. And as a society that is consumed with the idea of having to solve everything, the scriptures present a reality where, where essentially David and and Paul and Isaiah and here in Kings, they walk us to the edge and they say, whatever is in front of you, you, you can look at it. It's almost as if you're standing at the edge of the ocean and saying, we know very well what's behind us, but there's something about what's in front of us that we just don't understand. That this is beyond my capacity as a human being to be able to wrap my head around. Why, why do we take the time to, to go there and to focus on this verse? Because this isn't the only time in Scripture that we see this with human government. And in fact, I would make the argument that this is not a one-time event, but this is an every-time event. Romans 12, verse 1, it's, it says this. It, it says, or excuse me, 13, verse 1. It says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Wow. What a fascinating thing to think that God in his grander story and moving along this narrative that people are broken, they need a king, they need a savior. His name is Jesus Christ. He's going to save them. And if we have faith in him, we can die. We can be with him forever. In that whole storyline, God works in kings. God works in rulers in ways that move his story forward. And so what do, we, what do we do with that? What does that mean for us? How does that impact right now? Here's what I think it means. I think we look at the news and we look at rulers and we look at presidents and we look at kings and we look at leaders and I think we say, huh, there's something deeper than I can see at first glance. There's something that a news article will never be able to touch its finger on here. That God is doing something, and I may not see it, I may not fully comprehend it, but I believe what the scriptures say when I trust that God has put who he is in charge, in charge. And so there's a note of humility for me to just have an awareness to say God's doing something big here that I don't fully understand all the reason behind. It's almost like if we were to take this theory out, if we were to take this, what the scripture presents as true, out and just look at it all, it, it's like we're playing tic-tac-toe while God's working on chess. 
He's working in a way that's above what our minds can see. Generations before and after. And there's stuff where, where we're looking and it says, like, this happened and then, then centuries later this happened and all tied together because God's weaving together a story that's far more complex than we can imagine. And, and so I think it means two things for us. I think it means, first of all, that we wonder. Not that we live in fear, but that we wonder. I think there's a healthy note to, to be able to look at what's going on in a global leadership perspective and just say, God, I wonder what you're doing here. I I can't necessarily draw a concrete conclusion, but I wonder what you're doing here. Almost like when I I go outside at night and I look at the stars and I just say, wow, that's, that's incredible. There's a note of wonder of how big, of how far, of how long. There's a part of this where I'm just amazed. And then I think, I think we step back. And I don't think it's just the humility to wonder about that. But I think there's something we observe about humanity. And how humanity responds to different leaders. And, and what it is that they want and they long for. And so we look at Rehoboam. And he had the elders of his nation come to him and say, Look, if you want the people to be with you, if you want them to serve you favorably, then you should be considerate of them. How does this story unfold if Rehoboam comes out and says, I've heard your cry. I understand it is unreasonable. I understand it's been inhumane. And so we're going to find a different solution. I don't know what it is right now, but I've heard you. Even just to hear them and to value, how does this story change? See, I I think there's a part of us where we learn something about the nature of humanity that we want a king who doesn't serve himself, but serves his people. I think we see that our hearts long for a king who, despite all the opportunity for self-promotion, cares about his subjects and loves them and is even willing to, to serve them. And it brings to mind an interaction of Jesus with his disciples in Matthew chapter 20, where Jesus is, is there and one of the disciples' moms comes up to Jesus. Actually, two of their moms are brothers. It comes up to Jesus, and um, she's going to ask them a question. She says, hey, when you get into your kingdom, can one of my boys sit at your right hand and rule with you? Now, I, I always read this, and I wonder, like, if, I was, if that was my mom, how would I feel at that moment? I think I'd be like, Mom, are you kidding me right now? This is the Son of God. Just go away. Like, don't bother him right now. This is so embarrassing. But a mom is doing what a mom is doing where she wants what's best for her kids. And so she says, hey, can my son be honored? Can he sit in this position of just, just it would be a great thing for my boy. And Jesus, Jesus gives a response, which is so incredible because he doesn't just answer his que- her question. He answers in a way that really unveils this sort of paradox that is deep within the idea of what it means to be a Christian, to be a leader. In any sense, if it's, if it's the leader of a family, if it's the leader of, if you're a job, if you're a coach, if you're a boss, what, any sort of leadership is at the heart of Jesus' answer. So, so she says to him, can my son sit on your throne uh, next to you? And, and he says, um, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? And at first it seems very odd. Why is he, why is she asked about thrones, why is he talking about cups? 
Well, we understand what he means by cups because Jesus in John 18, he's talking about the, the suffering he's about to endure when he's going to die in the place of humanity. And, and he's, he says, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And what he means by that is, is shall I not experience wrath? Shall I not die and take judgment in, my, in suffering? And so, so when the disciples' mom says, can they sit next to you on the throne? And Jesus says, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? He's saying that, look, you think this is about greatness. It's not. You think this is about exaltation. It's not. It's about humiliation. You, you think this is about a throne. There can't be a throne unless there's a cross. There can't be a throne unless I first give of myself, unless I drink the cup, unless, unless your sons, if, unless my followers drink the cup that is theirs to drink. There is no greatness without sacrifice. There is no true king that, that, that is ultimately what we want. There is none of that without first suffering. And look at what he says in, in verse 25 as he, as he calls all of his disciples together. I don't know if mom's still there at that point. But he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, look at this phrase, lord it over them. Lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And what a powerful, powerful thought. For him to say, no, no, this isn't what you think. This isn't like government as we've seen it portrayed in the world. Because what we see again and again is that those in that position are over, are over, lorded over, they rule over, they have authority over. I tell you of a different type of king. Not a king who comes to be served, but a king who comes to serve. And here's what I think. I think that's what your heart wants. I think that's what your heart searches for. And so I pray we as a people, we as a church, do not build our hope in a search for a king on a swamp. I hope we build it on the solid ground that is Jesus Christ. The one who came not to be served, but to serve. Because desperately, that's what you want. And then the call, the call from Jesus is that we would be a people like him. That we would understand that greatness is not about being served, but greatness is about serving. And emphatically throughout the scriptures, what we see is greatness is not just about serving people who might help your life be better, but greatness is actually helping those who cannot help you. This is where James comes along and he says, true and undefiled religion is this, to help widows and orphans in their distress. Well, why is that, why is that true and undefiled? Because there's no ability to say, I'm going to help them so that they can help me. And Jesus looked at us in our sin and knew knew there was nothing that we could do to, to sort of pay him back for this. But out of love, he chose to serve. And that's who your heart hopes for. And so as we look at a season of chaos, there's no chaos in God's eyes. As we look at a season where things might sink around us, there's no sinking in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father God, we pray. And we ask, Lord, for you to just grow us that we would be a people with confidence in you. Lord, in places of uncertainty, in places where we don't understand, Lord, I, I hope that we're driven to wonder. 
Wonder what it is that we don't see that you're doing. Wonder how you're unfolding this in a way that's going to bring your glory in the end. Father, I pray that that wonder produces trust. That through your word, we would, we would just rely on whatever it is that we have to endure personally, as a church or as a nation, that we would endure trusting you. God, I pray that as we search for a king who serves, we understand that it will never, ever, ever be more satisfied than it is in you.